Jesus, please speak today. Spirit, we ask that you would act today, that you would uh, you would expound the word, Lord, that you would not just uh, help, help us to see that it is true, but Lord, you would help us to see that it's true for us, uh, that it's transformative for us, that, that, that as we look on the glory of our Savior, we are a people changed by who you are. And so we ask that that would be what you would do today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're, we're in Lamentations chapters 4 and 5 today, so if you've got a Bible, whip that on open there. Thank you to Barry for reading that out for us before. Um, uh, but I was going to start just by saying, I once, I once went along to a church. Uh, it was in South Australia, actually, uh, but not nowhere near here. Um, it was a town that I was visiting, and I just popped into this church on a Sunday. And I can't remember uh, the passage that they were speaking from that day. Their preacher uh, might have been Jeremiah 29:11 at a stab. Um, but I think it was around the time of the global financial crisis, uh, if, if your memory goes back that far. Um, some people are like, that was yesterday. And some people are like, I was six. Um, and the, the preacher, he was telling the church on that day that being the people of God, having God on our side should make us visibly different to the world around us. Now, I agree with that statement, by the way. But uh, his example of that was that when we go to the shops, we should be paying from savings, not from credit. Um, now, ignoring the fact that that is a gross misunderstanding of how FBOS works. Um, his point was that we, we shouldn't be running out of money, uh, that, that we should be well off when the rest of the world is struggling. Uh, and, and can we see that he started really close to a really powerful biblical truth there, uh, but landed so very, very far away from it uh, in how he applied that. Um, now, we're in, like I said, week three of the Book of Lamentations, and, and we're going to see that our experience amidst struggles should cause us to be visibly different to the world around us. But not in the way that that preacher had said. Rather, uh, when we struggle and suffer, our experience of gospel hope there enables us to express gospel hope to others. And, and that's what we're going to see today. So, so here we go. Lamentations is a book about struggle, about suffering. Uh, I, was, I was listening to a podcast this last week where they just so happened to bring up a book uh, that was called, what was it called? Uh, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. It was about how to lament as a Christian. I didn't mean to put this on because I'm doing Lamentations. It just came up. Uh, God's good like that. Uh, it's by a guy named Mark Brugop. Don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, but but uh, like I said, it's about learning to lament as a Christian. Um, and, and one thing that the podcaster quoted from his book that I thought was so apt, so useful, was a, a little definition of what it means to lament as a Christian. Um, and I thought that was something that would really help us as we go through this series. Because when we think of lamenting, perhaps we think of, you know, moaning, essentially. And there can be some level of that involved. But, but we think of someone who's just kind of wallowing in us and not really getting anywhere. But that's really not what lament is. That's not a full-blooded view of what it means to lament. Um, here's his definition that I thought was really good. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads us to trust. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. And that's important because whilst lament is an expression of our pain, it's not, it's not just some, some process, some, some methodical process that we go through. It's an actual painful thing that we go through. It involves open expression of our feelings, yes, but, but uh, uh, it's more than that. Um, Christian lament comes from a place of knowing that God is in control. God is the only place we have to run. 
He is our refuge. And when we go to him, we find that he is a faithful refuge. And so we build new, stronger trust through lament. Uh, We build new, stronger hope through lament, through the the process of lament, uh, because uh, he proves trustworthy to us. And that's the process that we're we're working out, that we're working out here in Lamentations, the process we see working out. Jeremiah, the prophet who who we take to have written this book, uh, is praying in pain. And and that that process leads him to trust in God all the more, is what we find. And the first two chapters, just to give you a summary, and and by the way, the the website is now up to date. If you would like to catch up on the sermons, if you weren't here for the last two weeks, and you, you feel like that, then you can get to them on our resources page on the web, website. But the first two chapters of Lamentations, we found Jeremiah in the midst of the pain, really, uh, in, the, in the dust and the rubble of destroyed Jerusalem with a uh, remnant of the people who were starving around him, who were suffering in slavery, li- living in desperation. Uh, really is a, a terribly desperate scene that we see represented there. Worse than anything, I think I can very confidently say that any of us have been through and if you don't believe me and you haven't read the first two chapters of Lamentations, then please go and read it and, and change your mind. Um, <laughs> it, it's horrendous. Um, and, and, and in that, Jeremiah had this tension to deal with. God is our only hope, our only possible comforter, but God is clearly the just judge delivering what is happening right now. And he came to that question, that key question that runs throughout this book, Is God, in the final sense, our wrathful judge or our tender comforter? What will he be to me and to us? In chapter three, where we were last week, uh, uh, the struggle, it turned in a personal direction for Jeremiah. Uh, In the midst of his personal struggle, though, Jeremiah found hope. Because he saw that the true hope is not just that the Lord would deliver them. True hope is the Lord. Uh, true hope is that the Lord is my portion, as he cried out. Therefore, I will hope in him, back in 3.23 there. Because, because God is the only hope that cannot be shaken when the world crumbles around you. You can't lose God if you have him, because he holds you. And, you know, he found there perhaps an unexpected answer to the question, is God our judge or our comforter? And that came in the form of, of this. God is only the comforter if God is the comfort. If God is at the centre of the comfort, then he is your comforter. God would only give hope if that hope was first centred on him. And so the author places his hope in the person of God. In having God as his portion. And, and he emits the pain that he, this unmistakable hope, <laughs> sorry, um, he found that amidst the pain, this unshakable hope could be trusted. And that that made all the difference. Uh, and we saw that working out. So, so, so lamenting, Jeremiah prays in the pain and is led to trust and to hope, do we see. And as we reach chapters four and five today, it's tempting to think, that it's uh, that his certainty of that hope really just collapses in on itself. Um, if if anyone's read this this week, it's really easy to read it that way. That in the face of the challenges around him, he just falls apart again. Uh, and 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 it should be said that that we do go through that as Christians. Um, 
We do go through stages where we struggle and we think we've got to a place of hope and then we struggle again and then we think we've got to a place of hope. And that's, that's something of the nature of this life. But and our hope is fully realized when Jesus comes back. And, and in this world, we do struggle. It's true. Uh, but, but a closer reading of this text, I think, reveals something different. Something else is going on here. In chapters 4 and 5, we've moved into something else altogether. Now, now these chapters do look at first like a step backwards um, because their, their themes and their content, they aren't new, especially in chapter 4. Chapter 4 quite specifically echoes those first two chapters on the destruction of the city. Uh, if, you, if you open it, have a look. Lamentations chapter 4 Look at this with me. 4 verse 4, he mourns the famine in the city and he says, um, the tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Now, to give you a sense of, of how terrible the suffering was, I picked that verse because it's not the worst of it. Um, but what a terrible picture, right? But now, now have a jump back with me to chapter 2, you know, and what did, what did Jeremiah say there? In the last words of verse 11, he says, infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. He said in verse 19 and 20, lift your hands to him for the, for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. So he's, he's echoing here, do you see? He's, he's bringing the same things back in that he saw, we saw in those early chapters. And that's just an example. And there's heaps of this in these two chapters, especially chapter four. He also uh, echoes the strong thought from the first chapters that it's the wrath of God that is doing this. Uh, 4.11, he writes, the Lord gave full vent to his wrath. That, that could be the summary of chapter two of Lamentations. And yet here we find it again in chapter four. Chapter five, to a large extent then, uh, echoes the cries for God to look and to see that we saw earlier on, to see the destruction of the city and to act. And we saw that a lot in, in, in 1 verse 9, 1 verse 11, 1 verse 20, 2 verse uh, 20. You could, you could be forgiven, the point is, if after a brief reading of this, you came, you came away uh, thinking of it as a huge struggle followed by a brief glimmer of hope followed by a complete collapse back into the struggle of uncontrolled pain. That's basically how I read it the first time I read this book, by the way. One chapter of hope in the middle, a sandwich of suffering on either side. But in reality, chapter four is not a backslide. Not, not, that, not, that, uh, not the way I see it anyway. He, he actually moves on to do something very different. Chapter four, the author leads the people through the, the struggles that he has been walking through. Let me explain. Uh, it, it, it's, it's true to say that the author moves back into the struggle in this chapter. He, walk, he talks about all of the same things that we saw in chapters 1 and 2. But whilst the big words stay the same, words like famine, words like destruction, uh, bones, you know, <laughs> the, the nasty big words, the little words here change. And, and to read the Bible well, you really do need to pay attention to the little words. It's a, it's a lesson worth learning, and it's one that we learn the hard way again and again. Uh, particularly in this case, because they show you who the author is speaking with and to. You might remember that uh, we saw a change of the perspective back in chapter 3, if you were here last week. About halfway through, the author stops talking about God and he starts talking to God. 
He stops saying, he has done this and he has done that. And he starts saying, you've done this and you have done that and you've given me hope. And that perspective change was so significant because it indicated that the move from the author struggling on his own to the, to the author struggling with God through what God has done and, 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 and finding hope in what God is doing. In chapter four, the author does go back to the struggle and the pain, like I said. Just like in chapters one and two, presenting the suffering and its cause, uh, that the city has suffered justly under the wrath of God for sin. But, but look carefully. For the first 16 verses, uh, we don't get to many hints. We don't get that many hints. But then he, he suddenly starts speaking like this. We see in, in verse 16, I think. Uh, our, our eyes failed, ever watching for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. Do you see it? Now, that's still pretty hopeless, you must admit, reading that. But do you see what's different there? Compare that to, say, chapter 2, verse 3. Just to pick one out of the hat, right? He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. Do you see it? Before chapter 4, the word our has appeared four times in this book as a whole. And the word we has come up once. Uh, and and, and oh, you know, once in reference to the people. Because the author has been speaking about the city. He's been speaking uh, about the city and God, about himself and his experience of God's action or to God. Those are kind of the three categories that we've been in. But now in chapters four and five, he uses our, he uses we, and he uses us all over the place. He speaks collectively. He speaks with the city. And you see the difference that that makes, how that changes what we see happening here. Yes, he's walking back through the same struggles, but these last two chapters are written for the sake of walking others down the same road that he has been down. He's, he's, by his pronouns, drawing others into the struggle that he's been through and leading them towards hope. So chapter four is not Jeremiah falling back into despair, although there is clearly still pain for him here. The pain's still real. If we take that little definition of a lament that I, that I mentioned at the beginning, we could say that chapters 1 to 3 are Jeremiah's prayer in pain that lead him to trust. But now he's seeking uh, to lead lament, to lead others in a prayer in their shared pain so as to lead them to trust in God, to hope in God as Jeremiah has been led to. So then chapter 4, Jeremiah is Jeremiah leading others to see the bad news. To see the bad news that he discovered himself back, to, back in chapters 1 to 2. And, and that is, what's happening here is God's just judgment on us. We have sinned. We are under judgment. He, he, he walks back through the terror of what's going on. And I should say, I'm, this is what was happening for them. This is not directly what applies to us today. But he walks them through the famine, the, the atrocities, the oppressions. And, and he concludes in verse 13... This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who led, uh, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous, her being the city of Jerusalem. Yeah. And what he's saying there isn't just that, oh, it's just these small group of people. He's saying even the priests, even the prophets, who should have been the most righteous, were in fact the murderers. He ends the section by reminding them of God's 
just consistency then in punishing others as well. Um, but do you see, chapter four is uh, Jeremiah leading the people through the bad news that he's already struggled with. He's, this is it. We, along with all of humanity, are sinners who justly sit under the wrath of God. And they were feeling it. And in chapter five, he begins uh, a 22 verse corporate prayer, uh, a shared prayer. Now he's talking with the people to God. Uh, he leads the people through repentance toward the hope that he's experienced. Uh, read verse one with me. Um, he says, remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. So that, that orientates this whole chapter is he's talking to God. And in the prayer that follows, there are these two sections. Uh, the larger is verse 1 to 18, uh, where he brings their suffering before God and he, and he acknowledges their sin. And, and to get a taste of that, read verse 16 with me. He says, the crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. See the repentance working out there. For this, our heart has become sick. For these things, our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. He says, our crown has fallen. Our rule is destroyed because, because of one thing, our sin. Because we turned from you, God. You uncrowned us. You dethroned us. But then in verse 19 to 21, he prayerfully leads them toward hope, toward the only hope that he knows, God. Read verse 19 with me. He says, but you, O Lord, you reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Now, do you, do you see the beauty of this line after what he's just said? In verse 16 to 18, he acknowledges, we have lost our rule and our crown because of our sin. But then he says, we have hope because our God still reigns. Even if, even if we're not ruling, even if our crown's been removed by you justly, God, you still reign and so we hope in you. And then read on, he says, why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. And he comes toward the end of the book. We'll do, deal with that last bit. But he comes toward the end of the book and the prophet acknowledges, only you can restore us, God. We can't bring ourselves back to you. Only you can do it. And finally, the, the book ends in, on this genuinely quite disturbing note. Um, you can't avoid it, right? The final verse flows from the one that we just read. This is the reason why when people preach Lamentations, they often just do three verses in the middle of chapter three. He says, restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. The end. Uh, he doesn't write the end. That's how the book ends. Feeling warm and cuddly inside yet? It, it seems that the book cuts off there, I think, firstly, because the prophet hopes for God to restore them. Uh, and, and he's looking for that, but he doesn't know that the city will be restored yet. But, but secondly, because he has led the people as far as he can. So it ends in nervous expectation. Will the people follow in repentance? Will God deliver us as a repentant people? 
Now, we're not going to dwell on that, but I should say uh, deliverance did come, you know, the, the exile did come to an end. In fact, in accordance with the promises that Jeremiah himself had received back in the book of Jeremiah 25 and 20, uh, 29, that there would be a 70 years and then they would come back. Um, and, and although it must be said, Jeremiah himself was probably not there to experience that, but he wasn't. But, but God wasn't done with the people of Judah um, and because God was not done with them, because he did continue to work graciously toward them, Jesus did come. And, and in the eternal sense, we do not stand in the position that they did in Jesus. We, uh, we need never fear that God is going to reject us outright. There is security for those who have believed in Jesus. But stepping out of that side point, significant side point, by the way, but do we see what's happened in these two chapters? On the basis of his own struggles and his own experience of hope, the author has walked the people through the struggle, through the suffering, and toward gospel hope, toward God. Because he engaged the struggle, because he got into it, took it to God, prayed in pain, and was led to trust God, out of his own experience of hope in the midst of struggles, he is able to lead others toward hope in the midst of their struggles. Now that's a really important, really significant biblical principle there for how we live our lives as Christians. It's one actually that, that the New Testament applies to us. We, uh, Crystal read this out just before in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I love this verse. Phil Cook preached it to us a little while back. But, um, and, and notice these words here. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. Let me get here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, God comforts us in our affliction. And notice the little words there, so that. So that what? Why does God comfort us when we're afflicted, when we go through struggles, when we go through pain? Why does he comfort us? What's the purpose? Why does he do that? So that we might be comfortable so that we might not struggle anymore? Well, actually, no, that's, you know, maybe disappointingly, but actually gloriously, that's not what he says. God comforts us in all our afflictions so that we might be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. With what? With, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So here's the principle, I'll come back to it. Our experience of gospel hope equips us, it enables us to express gospel hope to others. Now, now I, I want to bring this down in two ways, uh, apply this principle in, in two, two ways. First, our experience of eternal hope in the face of eternal affliction enables us to share that hope with others who are facing that same fate as us. This is, this is kind of the obvious one. If, if, if you want to pick one of the two, that's the obvious one. As, as believers in Jesus, we are people who are who have experienced the joyful hope that comes 
from Jesus comes with knowing that the eternal condemnation of our sins has been taken from us. It's been removed. Jesus took it all on himself at the cross, like, like Joy read out in the Jesus story of the Bible before. He went to the cross for us and chose to stay there for us. And so we have been delivered and we live in the joy of that. And we live in the joy that that one day we will be with him forever. Our hope will be reached. And that hope experienced then becomes hope expressed for us. When people are faced with the failures of their hopes, we should hold out to them our eternal and unfading hope in God. But it's, it's not uh, just this one large scale moment in your life sort of thing. Uh, it's not just one experience of the gospel that we can apply this to uh, that enables us to express gospel hope to others. There are these innumerable instances in our day-to-day struggles where we face opportunities to experience and therefore express gospel hope. In our, in our everyday struggles, we are faced with a choice, do you see? Do we seek our hope in the gospel when we struggle or do we look elsewhere for hope? You see, the the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the good news of of hope in God uh, through the work and the person of Jesus, it's not just good for giving hope in the face of final judgment. Uh, We we have a whole of life gospel that has been delivered to us, uh, which can offer solid hope in the midst of any struggle here and now. In a sense, that's what we've seen Jeremiah doing, isn't it? Right? I mean, he isn't facing the final judgment, though he may struggle to believe it at times. But he finds gospel hope in the midst of the struggle that he's in now. The the flip side of this is that when we walk through our life struggles and we, we reach out for other hopes, or if we just remain in hopelessness, then we actually we actually are, are damaging our ability to speak gospel hope into the lives of others. Do you see how this works on the flip side there? Are we with me? Yeah, cool. Some people nodded. Uh, (laughs) Let me give you two examples of of life struggles where this works out before we finish up today. Uh, Although really, you know, this can apply to, like I said, to any struggle. But I want to labour this because I really, I want us to see that there is practical. There is everyday truth here, everyday application here that's transformative for our lives. Now, suppose, hypothetical here, suppose that you have a boss and your boss doesn't appreciate you. You think you deserve a promotion perhaps, but consistently he or she picks others above you and you struggle with that. There's a struggle that a lot of people go through, isn't there? You know, maybe for you it's not that. Maybe it's it's not actually getting the job in the first place. Maybe it's just something completely different. But but you could reach out for bitterness as your solution. You could preach to yourself that you do deserve this promotion. You do deserve this job. And because you deserve it, because I deserve this, I'm going to do whatever I can to get it. Right? And, and I'm right to be... Uh, not to be satisfied uh, until I do have it because it's what I deserve. That's, that's one false gospel that you could preach to yourself. 
And regardless of how that turns out for you, two months later, say, you go to, to coffee with a friend. And, and they say to you, oh man, I really hate my work. <laughs> my boss doesn't appreciate me. I deserve to move up, but he just won't let me. Sometimes I just want to quit. How are you going to respond to that? I'll tell you how you respond. You'll speak from your own experience. You'll speak from the hopes that you've reached for, from the place you've sought hope in the same situation, right? You will you'll say, I relate. That's terrible. You do deserve that promotion. You do deserve to be promoted. I wish you could tell your boss how nasty he really is. Don't quit. Keep working hard to get that raise. Now, how could have that looked different? Well, suppose, what if in your own struggle, you had found comfort in the gospel? Now, let me explain how that might work. You want, you want what you deserve? That's, that's the basis here, right? This is the premise of, of what you're saying is, I want what I deserve. I want the job. What do we deserve in the gospel? You remind yourself that the gospel tells us that a promotion is not what I deserve. Hell is what I deserve by my actions and by my life. But talk about a promotion. From death to life. At the great cost of his son, God has moved you from child of wrath to child of God. And, and, and you want approval? <laughs> Your heavenly father looks on you and sees the righteousness of his perfect son and says, you are beloved. You are my loved son or daughter. When, when you catch up for coffee with that friend of yours, how do you respond now? Well, maybe if they're a disciple of Jesus, a believer, um, you remind them of those gospel truths just outright. You know, you encourage them to persevere for the sake of the gospel, to take uh, to, so, so that their boss, you know, who is distant from God, so that their boss and colleagues might see something of the grace of God in how their hope is sustained in this situ situation and how ha their hope leads them to walk through this differently to how any other person walks through this. You remind them of the reality of their situation and, and the weight of the grace that has been shown to them, to both of you. You encourage them to repent, to turn from false hopes like you've been challenged to do when you went through this thing. Just like God taught you to do, right? You challenge them to turn to the one true hope that you both have. Or maybe they're not a believer, right? Maybe they're not someone who's trusted in Jesus. Then you're in a position to say, you know, to say, you know, I struggled with this myself. I really, really did. Through the same thing. And I could only find hope in one place that kept me steady through all of this. I could only get through it and stop wasting my life on being ruled by my boss's approval by knowing Jesus. Knowing the truth of who he is and what he's done for me. Knowing that I've received so much in him. I had to acknowledge that I was pursuing something less satisfying when I went through this friend. Uh, and I had to put my hope back in him. He, he's what you need too, do you see? 
I know of nothing else to hold out to you in this situation. And an opportunity to offer kind of unhelpful, sympathetic advice, or shared complaint, I suppose, has become an opportunity for the gospel to shine. For your hope to shine. Because you experienced it first. Situation number two. Marriage struggle. Now, um, here's one that might relate to the married couples here and might relate to some of the others someday. Uh, and once again, this applies to every situation. So, so please invite reading it into your own. Um, and if you're struggling with that, come have a chat with me afterwards. Suppose though, that you're struggling through persistent arguing in your marriage. Now I know that's unthinkable. Um, no, anyone who's been married for more than two years here, right, is, is absolutely nodding their head and going, yeah, yeah, we, we know what that's like. And, uh, and, 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 you know, maybe some of you are shocked at the suggestion that you could get through two years of marriage without persistent arguing. Okay. Uh, some, but sometimes you get so angry, right, that they just won't see reason or they won't love you the way that they should. Now, we won't go into the details of that, but option number one of how you respond, right? Your response to that is that one of you becomes the dominant arguer. This is how I tend to see it working out. Um, two dominant arguers is a really loud situation, by the way. Uh, if, it, if it's the husband, then maybe, maybe the wife's submission becomes more like um, subservience, really. Um, you keep your head down because he gets so mad. Or if it's the wife who's the dominant arguer, maybe the husband just gives up on leading, right? And instead just harbors this bitterness over his wife's poor choices. Either way, a few years later, when a married couple comes to you for advice in the same struggle, how are you going to respond to that? And that's something we're called to as the people of God, by the way, is to bring our struggles to each other. If that sounds like a foreign concept that could never work out, then, then welcome to the family of God. Um, you know, but maybe you respond with, oh man, you got to show her her place now, man. Because if you don't, she's going to be the boss lady the rest of your life. Or maybe, maybe you know, you've got to keep your head down. Women, they're so crazy. I'm not, this is not what I'm preaching here, by the way. Um, <laughs> You know, you got to learn to follow your boss lady. Or, or maybe maybe it is for the ladies here, that, you know, he's going to blow up at some point. Just go along with it and stay quiet. He's your boss now. He's never going to lead well. Trust me, you need to pick up the reins or no one will. Now, option number two. And I should say, option number two is where we step well outside of the hypothetical here. Um, this, this was us. Uh, we argued quite a bit in our first few years of marriage. Um, that's a thing that happened. And the gospel frees us from that. Um, and it frees me to tell you about this, by the way. You know, I just said before, we're meant to bring our struggles to each other. Ta-da! Um, but, but what pulled us through that was, uh, was remembering the grace that God has shown to us. Honestly. This is how we got through the first few years of marriage. There was some argument there. You know, take the situation and apply it to our relationship with God. He didn't just, we, we think we're in the right, right, when we argue. Um, we still argue sometimes, by the way. Um, I can think of a recent argument where I felt very strongly like I was in the right. Anyone relate to feeling like you're in the right when you're in an argument with your spouse? 
Stop lying, you big liars. Um, God didn't just think that he was in the right when it came to us. God is in the right, categorically, and he could have crushed us, really. He could have come down and said, look at your sin. Look at how wrong you are. You're so stupid. Kids, not advocating this is what we say. You're so deserving of my wrath. But, but hallelujah, that's not what he did. And there we found hope in the midst of our friction in our marriage. Christ died in sacrificial love for his bride, the church. And he, he showed us what the love of a husband is. The church follows him, submits to him because he has loved and won us. That blew our pride in arguing right out of the water and, and has gradually made us more gracious with each other. Don't expect this to change your whole marriage in one argument, by the way. Um, a few years later, some friends of ours, they came to us um, and said that they were astounded. They were shocked. They'd been married a year and had just had their first proper argument. They didn't know what to do. Were they, were they not compatible? Did this mean it was over? How would their marriage survive this now that they'd argued? And out of the gospel hope that we'd found in our struggles, we were able to speak grace into their situation. We were able to lovingly build them up in the gospel. We were able to gently direct them away from the idols of, of, of the perfect spouse and the perfect marriage and toward the true God who is perfect in love toward us and who shows us how to love even when it hurts or it doesn't seem fair. And this is, this is relevant for every struggle, right? For sickness, for depression, for loss, for, for poverty, for, for every struggle. We have, uh, every struggle that we have is an opportunity for us as Christians. Don't go looking for struggles, don't get me wrong. But every struggle is an opportunity to find the grace of God anew in the, how the gospel applies here in this part of my life. To do what we said last week, right? To engage the struggle with the gospel. But more than that, engaging our struggles with the gospel and experiencing its truth enables us to speak that truth to others. To speak gospel hope into others' lives, into their struggles, to say to save the lost and to build up the church, you know? We have an all of life gospel. Good news for every part of your life and every struggle in your life. And as such, as Christians, we can walk through those struggles, finding hope in the gospel. And, and, and on those grounds, we can speak gospel hope into the lives of others. So would you join me? We're going we're to pray about that now. God, um, we come before you in, in truth here and just say that we are a people who struggle. We struggle with our own brokenness within, 
with our attitudes towards others. We struggle with how others are towards us. We struggle with the unpredictable things that happen in our lives, with the uncertainties of this world, with, with our health, with our joys or lack thereof, with, with, with so many things, Lord, we struggle. And we need you. And Lord, we come before you in praiseful worship, in, in unabated joy because you deliver us. Because in our, in our lowness and in our suffering and in our deservingness of wrath, you sent your son you sent your son into the world to save us. What can separate us? You even sent your own son. Lord, we pray that we would see that truth working out in our lives and our situations. I pray for us as the people of God that we would be able to be honest in our struggles, honest with you and honest with others, and that we would find the truth the truth of how the, the deliverance that is in Jesus works in our struggles. And through that, Lord, you would build us up to be a people of hope, a people who experience hope and express hope in all that we do. We pray it in the name of, of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.